Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Africa's security services are using excessive force to ensure compliance with COVID-19 public health measures. Does this portend more abuses and unrest in the coming weeks? And Lesotho's Prime Minister Tom Tabane agrees to step down because of his alleged involvement in his ex-wife's murder. What does his final days in power reveal about politics during this pandemic? Plus, we discuss the trends shaping Africa's future. What types of policies could unleash the continent's potential and stave off the more pessimistic scenarios? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. As part of the COVID-19 response, Africa's military and police are enforcing stay-at-home orders and lockdowns across the continent. Unfortunately, these measures have led to some deaths and scores of abuses in several countries. Nigeria's National Human Rights Commission on Wednesday claimed in a report that security operatives killed 18 civilians during enforcement of a total lockdown in major cities in the country over the novel coronavirus. How do African countries ensure compliance with social distancing measures without relying on excessive force? Joining me to discuss the role of security forces in the COVID-19 response and other issues is Jonathan Rosenthal, The Economist's Africa editor, Aaron Sikorsky, the deputy director of the Strategic Futures Group at the National Intelligence Council, and Yaki Silier, the chairman of the Institute of Security Studies, ISS, Board of Trustees, and the head of the African Futures and Innovation Team in Pretoria. Yaki is also the author of the new book, African First, Igniting a Growth Revolution. Just a reminder to our listeners, we're recording this episode remotely for health and safety reasons. We apologize in advance for the sound quality. Also, news is moving really fast these days, so by the time you listen to this, there may have been some updates. Jonathan, let's start with you. The Economist covered this issue in the April 4th edition. Where do we see this happening, and should we be worried about more of these abuses in the future? Yeah, so we're seeing this, gosh, at, at various levels almost across the continent. It's happening to a much greater extent in countries where there is somewhat weaker rule of law. I think think the numbers are all over the show in terms of how many people have died from from the virus and how many people have been killed by the security services but it's certainly fair to say that that if you know in the early stages of this outbreak more people were killed by the police and army uh in enforcing lockdowns than were than were being killed by the virus itself and i, and I think this happens i guess at, at two levels and the one is just a a kind of breakdown in the rule of law and that is simply that policemen and and officials are zealously trying to enforce rules and guidelines and, and overstepping their legal powers. And I think the second worrying thing is that uh, this is just giving license to police and soldiers in places where there is a really very weak rule of law to extort and extract bribes uh, in reports coming out of Nigeria of uh, you know, people trying to go to the banks uh, or ATMs, which are supposed to be open to get money to, to feed their families and uh, you know, being shot at by policemen in support of this lockdown. So, Yaki, this isn't a new problem, right? Like, we've seen security abuses uh, in the past. They've been well-documented. But I guess, for me, the stakes are higher here. If publics don't trust their governments and they fear the soldiers and the police, it can undercut the fight against the pandemic. Are there ways 
that governments can prevent this from happening so we can kind of move on to the epidemiological fight and not the the issue about sort of public safety? Yes, um, I mean, security force abuse is huge in Africa, and there are many reasons for this. Uh, poorly trained uh, forces, poorly resourced, is a legacy of abuse. They operate in a semi-democratic or undemocratic settings, and generally there's limited or no oversight from elected authorities and, and so on. So research that the ISS has done in East Africa and the Sahel has indicated that uh, security force abuse is often the tipping point that turns unhappy, poor, frustrated people into terrorists. And uh, it's not ideology or religion, but it is very often a personal experience from security force abuse. So uh, what to do? I think on the one side, the weaknesses of our security agencies reflect the weaknesses of African states. And uh, this is uh, very important, I think, to underline. So generally, improvements follow improvements in the capacity of the state. But... Um, so you don't expect um, super accountable security agencies in a country such as uh, Lesotho or Zimbabwe or Angola. So improvements follow the general improvements in the capacity of the state. And, and the basic things to have done is common, you know, remove the secrecy, publish budgets, subject um, the security forces to a degree of accountability by shining the light of transparency on them and establish clear mechanisms for review and oversight, such as through parliament or congress, and professionalize them, better training, management, and resourcing. And then, of course, a big problem in much of Africa is that our security agencies are not appropriately structured for the actual roles and functions that they are supposed to, to play. Our, our security architecture is just a hangover from the colonial times, we follow the Western model, which is not very well suited to Africa's realities. I mean, you have a country next door to us, I'm in South Africa, Botswana, that buys the most modern um, fighter aircraft to defend itself against what you can make the same argument about South Africa. Now, all of this needs to be changed. You know, I've been thinking through uh, as the pandemic has, has spread, what are the ways in which Things may change for the better, but one thing that I, I want to point out here that I don't want to ring too much of an optimistic tone, but I've been impressed by a couple of governments admitting that there have been abuses, calling out for the ombudsman, uh, and trying to think about accountability in new ways. And I would just highlight South Africa, which has been decent, although there's been some a little bit of problems between what Ramaphosa is saying and what uh, others are saying. President Kenyatta of Kenya apologized. Uh, he's done it twice now in both Botswana and Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, we've seen the heads of state talk about accountability and to call out abuses, which you didn't usually see in part because the victims were marginalized populations and now it's the general population. But Aaron, if we don't see governments really get this under wraps. What are the potential implications if we continue to see this approach uh, towards uh, enforcing the quarantine measures? Yeah, thanks, Judd. I think as we look at how the pandemic's going to shape things on the continent in the months and years to come, we have to think what trends does the pandemic confirm and which does it break? So you need to look at what was happening before the pandemic and how the current crisis may be amplifying the trends, or as you and Yaki and Jonathan have noted, how key actors are exploiting the crisis to take actions towards which they were already predisposed, right? Things they already had on their agenda, um, ways they may have already uh, planned to act. And as you guys well know, 2019 was the year of protests around the globe and sub-Saharan Africa had one of the highest protest rates, uh, growth rates over the past 10 years. 
a lot of these protests have stopped in the midst of the pandemic, but the underlying drivers of those protests still remain. So I think in many cases, the pandemic and government responses are exacerbating these drivers or throwing them into sharper relief. A few things that we're watching from the Strategic Futures Group perspective as we think about global trends in terms of drivers uh, that might contribute to future unrest or political instability uh, in terms of the pandemic, one is government capacity, which we've already talked about, right? Can they meet the healthcare and economic challenges posed by the pandemic? The second, and this is really important, is public trust. So will the population believe what the government or other institutional authorities are telling them about COVID-19? And then the third is inequality. Do publics perceive the government response as unequal? Do they think one group is being privileged over another you know, the examples you highlight, Judge, are concerning, particularly the identification of scapegoats and the lack of trust in authorities. Of course, these aren't unique to sub-Saharan Africa. And I would expect if you continue to see the security abuses and lack of trust in what government's telling folks across the continent, we could see protests and unrest pick back up again. That's a really interesting point. And particularly this one about inequality. I've been impressed with just the outburst of anger when a, a celebrity or a government uh, official in sub-Saharan Africa breaks the quarantine or breaks the self-isolating uh, measures. And at least in South Africa, there was a, you know, a repercussion for doing that. But I think people are watching to make sure that these laws are being applied equal across sectors and classes. So excellent points. I appreciate that. Chad, can I, can I jump in there? And sorry to, to, to take us back, but I, I thought your point about this leading to increasing calls for uh, accountability is a really interesting one. And, and one of the things that my correspondents have, have been telling me from, from various countries, whether it's Kenya or Uganda, uh, et cetera, is that in, in normal circumstances, given the kind of uh, you know, uh, divisive nature of politics in many countries, where, you know, whether it's language or, or tribal ethnicity or, or whatever it may be, you know, the security forces and the police are often sort of beating one group and, and kind of getting cheered on by another. And what seems to be you know, idiosyncratic about this is that you know, sort of everyone is feeling uh, put upon by the, by the security forces. Um, and, and therefore, you have a much more kind of cross-cutting demand for accountability. I think that's right. I think you're seeing governments trying to do whatever they can, palliative or not, to address it. Okay, let's move to Lesotho. Uh, I said in the opening that things are moving really fast. Here's a perfect example. I think we're finally moving to an end to the drama around the murder of Prime Minister Tom Tambane's ex-wife. Just to get everyone up to speed, Prime Minister Tambane, who is 80 years old, filed for divorce from his second wife in 2012. Five years later, she was shot and killed while driving home. That was two days before Tambane's inauguration and just two months before he remarried his third wife. Now, in February, his current wife, the first lady, was charged with the murder of the ex-wife and Tambane was implicated. He said, all right, I'm, I'm going to step down by July, I promise, and then quickly started to backpedal. And it looked like he was going to find a way to hold on. And then just a couple of days ago, as of this recording, he agreed to finally step down. Lesotho's government has agreed with South African mediators and political parties to implement a dignified retirement for Prime Minister Tamos Tabeni. This was disclosed in a joint statement on Monday, signaling step-up effort to end the political crisis. 
Tabene has been under pressure to resign owing to a murdered case in which he and his current wife are suspected of being involved in the assassination of his previous wife, charges which both of them deny. And I think this is a, a good story to talk about. It's not a good story, uh, but it's a good story to talk about because I think it allows us to take the temperature of Lesotho's democracy. And I, I'd love to hear, Yaki, your thoughts about what's happening to the country within your country. Context is, is quite important. You know, Lesotho is a low middle income country entirely surrounded by South Africa. Almost 80% of its population live below the $3.20 extreme poverty level for low middle income countries. Most of them live in rural areas. 25% of them are infected with HIV AIDS. High levels of unemployment, threat of economic collapse, ongoing. So uh, its politics is dominated by personality politics and ego leadership. And uh, uh, Prime Minister Tabane, as you said, was uh, and his wife were charged with the murder of his second wife. Um, and uh, he has then tried to first close parliament and use the COVID-19 epidemic as an excuse to try and hang on to, to power. Um, and uh, he's tried to fire his uh, chief of police and tried all kinds of ways to try and subvert the democratic process. The fact that he is, in actual fact, charged in itself is quite amazing. And I think that reflects to the extent to which, uh, even in a country like Lesotho, accountability and the sense of uh, an independent judiciary is taking some uh, hold. So I think that, uh, that this is all generally good news. Yeah, I think that it's an example of that in a fragile democracy, we can see leaders try to hold on to power, try to find any pretext possible. But if you do have institutions, as you said, Yaki, um, and particularly in this case where you had uh, both the ruling party, Tambane's party, but also the opposition pushing extraordinarily hard to get him to adhere to his commitments and step down. And by the way, a South African mediation that was critical, uh, you can have good outcomes. But Jonathan, I wanted to just tease out something that Tambane said that Yaki referenced, and that was around COVID. He said, while we are busy with COVID-19, it's shocking to learn that some selfish people are busy plotting to unlawfully overthrow the government. Embarrassingly, some of the people leading the campaign to topple my government are legislators from the party that I am leading. And the question I want you to tackle is, how concerned should we be that other governments may try to use the same playbook to say COVID-19 is an extraordinary circumstance and so my opposition, the press, etc., should toe the line and allow me to sort of rule uh, without any pushback or complications? We should be immensely concerned. And the reason we should be so concerned is because it's happening already. Um, it wasn't just Lesotho. We're seeing that happening elsewhere with authoritarian presidents. Um, we have seen uh, you know, elections you know, sort of either postponed or elections and referenda uh, all taking place in, in really difficult circumstances. And I suppose what makes this quite tricky to, to think about is that, is that in some respects, kind of democracy is damned if it doesn't, damned if it doesn't. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. The one was uh, you know, Guinea, which held this constitutional referendum that you know, could in theory allow uh, President Alpha Conde to run for another two terms. Um, and, and you know, that took place in, I suppose, the early stages of, of this outbreak, but, but clearly a, a circumstance in which people uh, may not have been comfortable going out and voting. Um, you know, on the other hand, you've got Ethiopia, which over the past 18 months, two years, has, has been moving towards democracy, um, the, the, the sorts of 
states of emergency and, and, and massive repression that we saw under the previous government has largely been lifted under Abiy Ahmed, and he's, he is trying to move towards a more democratic state. But he doesn't have a democratic mandate. He was, he was put in place by the ruling party, not through a full election. Um, and elections there are scheduled for August, which which would really you know, sort of allow him to put his democratic movement to the vote. And, and that clearly has to be postponed. Uh, and the question then becomes one of, does that postponement simply buy time for the democratic process to move forward? Or you know, does postponing the election by you know, 12 or 18 months or however long it takes um, to, to try to get through this virus, uh, then give him a free hand to, to sort of unleash the security forces on the opposition? It's almost like the prescription is the same for this issue as it was for the one about the security sector, is that communication and transparency are imperative. Um, you have to be able to create a consensus around the decisions that you're making. And that's the big distinction I make. I try not to say there's a right or wrong answer to whether you hold an election, delay it, postpone it, cancel it. But the critical thing is that you have institutional support, which Abi did. Uh, you have general support amongst the opposition and the political class. Um, and that's where we're sort of probably not going with the case of Malawi and a couple of other countries where it doesn't seem like there is a consensus forming around how to handle their election. And that's the only way you get through it. It's not an issue of what's the right time because there's no perfect answer here, but it's that everyone agrees or has a general understanding of why you're making the decisions you are. I would totally second that, in particular in the case of Malawi, where you've had a court ordering a rerun and the government fairly flagrantly uh, ignoring that having, having previously been found by the court to have rigged the election. I want to move on to our, our last topic, uh, which is something that the four of us have spent a lot of time uh, and experience doing, which is forecasting and scenario analysis. All of my three guests have deep experience in this field. Yaki just published his book, Africa First, Igniting a Growth Revolution. Jonathan wrote the Economist special report, The African Century. Aaron is working on the next edition of the National Intelligence Council's Global Trends, which is due uh, in January 2021. So everyone, you know, knows how to do this quite well. And I think this could be a it will be a really interesting conversation about where the continent's going. Yaki, let's start with your book first. There's a, a pretty dismal outlook in the beginning about extreme poverty and, you know, what I would call the tyranny of the continent's demographic burden. So what I'd like you to do is walk us through some of your main conclusions and particularly some of the methodology that helped you get there. The origins really of the book is the growing gap uh, in incomes that has been evident between averages in South Africa and the rest of the world since independence. So what I do in the book is I take uh, a succession of, in actual fact, 11 areas, and I uh, model what would be the impact of an aggressive but reasonable forecast of, of improvements. And I do that with demographics. Africa only gets to its demographic dividend around mid-century. So uh, our young population is not a boon. It's an actual fact, a drag on our development. And then I put this all together in a final chapter where I look at an Africa first scenario where I put these interventions together and see what is the combined impact if all good things come together. What could be possible for Africa by 2040? And I compare that with what I refer to as the current path trajectory, which is where Africa is expected to go. It's a culmination of the last 10 years of long-term forecasting that I've done at the, at the Institute. 
reading your book, Yaki, which is phenomenal, and then reading Jonathan's special series, in many ways, the conclusions are the same, but the way that you get there is different. So Yaki, you march us through some, some pretty tough statistics and then sort of end with some of the potential policy prescriptions that could reach to a, a better future than the current trajectory. And Jonathan, I don't know if I'm taking liberties here, but I feel like you give us a sandwich, right? You've got a very hopeful note in the beginning and a hopeful note at the end, but then in the middle, I think you get more of the challenges uh, and, and the real struggles that the continent will have to sort of emerge from its demographic uh, drag, as Yaki says. So I'd love to hear how you have been thinking about the Africa century and the region's prospects for growth and, and influence globally. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so I guess the first thing when, when I think about the African century is, is just to think about the fact that it, this is a continent that for both good and, and perhaps ill will, will play a very much larger role in world affairs. So if you go back to the colonial period, the population of Africa was sort of one third the size of Europe's. Um, you know, whereas now it's, it's it's considerably larger, and if you if you look at the demographic projections, and if you, if you take the the median United Nations population division projection by by the end of the century, by twenty one hundred, just under forty percent of, of the world's population uh, is forecast to be uh, in Africa. So, just by dint of that, if you if you have that many people, you you kind of can't ignore the continent. Um, I guess where I then differ and, and perhaps would disagree slightly with Yaki is that I, I think that that demographic forecast uh, is, is badly underestimating the impact of education, of in, you know, girls' education. Because what, what you see, you know, both in Africa and around the world is that, you know, by and large, you know, a, a woman who has not been educated at all will have, you know, six to seven children. A woman who you know had some primary school education uh, will probably have you know about two two children fewer. And and once she's finished secondary school, um, on average, she'll be having sort of two or fewer children. So, so I'm quite optimistic that the the big investments we've had in in education over the past fifteen twenty years are are likely to lead to a considerable drop in, in what they call the fertility ratio, the number of, of children that, that that women are going to have. Um, and I think that I that don't can agree. Re- <laughs> <laughs> Yaki, why don't you agree? You know, we factor in, of course, fertility rates differ quite uh, quite significantly, and we factor in the impact of uh, female education, uh, uh, greater distribution of modern contraceptives, basically female empowerment in our forecast. But uh, our fertility forecast, when we use Fs, is slightly below the median. Now, you know, looking out uh, with modern technology out Towards the end of the century, I do that as well, is the margin for error really grows. But I think we can, with a degree of confidence, look out till 2040, about 2050. And the reality is that, for example, median education levels, whether you're looking at adult above 15 or adult above 25, the gap between that in the rest of the world and Africa has not changed in 40 years. And the problem is not only the quantity of education, but the quality of education in Africa is in actual fact falling further behind. So even if you get a revolution in education, and that translates because what is really the driving force behind reductions in fertility rates is upper secondary female education. Education helps, but in actual fact, uh, what is a much more powerful driver of reductions in fertility is rolling out uh, modern contraceptives. So uh, education is important, but it will not be enough. What Africa has to do beyond political leadership, which is absolutely critical, is uh, that it needs to roll out modern contraceptive if it wants to more rapidly get to its demographic dividend. 
I am going to agree with Yaki in part, and, and, and I think where I'm going to agree is that, that forecasting is inherently dangerous, and, and arguing about demographics when, when neither of us is, is a professor of demographics is, is probably even more dangerous. Uh, I'm, I'm going to agree with you that, that contraception and availability does play a role, but I'm, I'm going to just throw out two, two last points. One is that if one looks at Iran, where there was a, a, a sort of strong post-revolutionary Iran, so after 1980, uh, when you, you had the mullahs in power and they were strongly pro-natal. They, you know, they believed that it was serving, serving God to have many babies and they encouraged this. But at the same time, they, they also believed in, in educating girls. And you had this huge jump in female literacy and, and, and schooling, you know, schooling rates. Uh, and you know, the fastest demographic transition we've seen anywhere in the world, you know, between the 1980s and, and the mid-2000s, you saw people going from about six babies per woman to, to less than two. So, so these transitions can be really rapid when they do happen. Um, and, and the second is, is, is clearly, you know, contraception helps. But if, if one goes somewhat further back in history and looks at a place like Norway, uh, which, which had its demographic transition, you know, 120 years ago, there wasn't much demographic, I mean, there wasn't much uh, modern contraception. But, you know, the change that happens is, is, is not necessarily that you, you are educating people to a particularly high standard. What you are doing is you're saying, you know, you have control of your own fertility and life. Yaki, we're going to do three things here. First, we're going to say people should read both uh, your book and Jonathan's series. And then uh, The Economist featured your comment that you had in the subsequent issue. So you can read that. Two, I think that we will definitely have to come back to this issue in another podcast or an event because it is critically important. And three, we're going to bring Erin into the conversation, both if she has any reactions to this debate, but also because in the last version of Global Trends, you did talk about some of these issues, right? The Nick said, in the next five years, sub-Saharan Africa will become more populous, youthful, urban, mobile, educated, and network. Um, I didn't write those words. I did sign off on them. Erin, reactions to the conversation that Yaki and Jonathan are having? And then are there things that you're able to preview uh, that you may say about the continent in the next edition? I think it's going to be due just before the U.S. inauguration, right? In January 2021? Yep, absolutely. So just a little background on, on global trends. It's published every four years by the National Intelligence Council. It looks out five and 20 years at key trends and uncertainties shaping U.S. national security. And it is, like you mentioned, tied to the U.S. election cycle. So it's meant to inform a new or returning presidential administration as they shape their national security strategy. Uh, before commenting on where we're, we're going, just to comment on, on the conversation between ya Jonathan and Yaki. Absolutely, we also have identified demographics as a key structural driver, right, that will shape the globe over the next 20 years. And that's been a trend in, in all the previous reports. It's one of the easiest trends in some ways to, to predict going forward. Where the uncertainty lies, and I think this is where the debate and the conversation happens, is what are the policy responses? How do humans react to the structural driver, right? How do states, how do individuals, how do institutions respond and decide to interact with or try and change that driver? And that's where these questions about fertility rates and interventions and how do you shift that? And I think those are the kind of places we like to highlight in global trends. But to, to go back to your question about what we said in 2017, most of that analysis obviously still holds. For the next report, though, I would add some words to that list. Mainly, I would add that the intensifying effects of climate change 
and environmental degradation are going to be a key challenge across the continent during the time period covered by the next report. We expect climate change is going to exacerbate a lot of the challenges we've already talked about, including food and water security, demographic and migration pressures, and conflict dynamics. I'd also highlight, though, I think it presents an opportunity for innovative responses. I'll be watching in particular uh, local dynamics at the city and sub-state level to see if we can identify some successful governance adaptations. But I don't want to underplay the extreme challenge it's going to pose. And I think governments, not only in sub-Saharan Africa, but around the globe, are going to face real difficulties as they try and balance short-term political considerations with the long-term climate considerations. I also think for Africa, one thing that the climate challenge underscores is the interconnectedness issue. And really, carbon emissions aren't a problem, obviously, of sub-Saharan Africa's making, but <laughs> the continent's going to feel the effects more acutely and more quickly than a lot of the rest of the globe. Two other trends I would preview, and these, these have already been talked about a bit by Jonathan and Yaki, but one is Africa's growing influence on the world. Uh, in many ways, it's just a numbers game given uh, the growing population, but I expect that African soft power is going to grow around the globe, as well as its economic power, both as a market, but also, I think, potentially uh, in terms of innovation. And then a corollary to that point is the increasing role of external actors in sub-Saharan Africa. I think another change will be the response from African governments and societies will shape the trajectory of this involvement a lot more over the next 20 years. And so I think we'll see, you know, leaders and governments not just being passive recipients, but actively shaping uh, how external actors play. And there, again, there's a lot of uncertainty here about how that will play out. Will it be a collaborative response across the continent? Will it be more competitive? How will African countries interact? That's great, Aaron. That's it sounds like it's going to be a fantastic contribution to the way we think about the continent. And I want to hone in on something you said about adaption and policy choices. And I think this is really, Yaki, I think this is the strength of your book uh, for me. And it's about policy interventions, or, or as Aaron said, adaptions, right? There are policy interventions that the continent's leaders can take and civil society around education or agriculture, industry, trade, etc., that can unleash the continent's potential. And I'd love it if you could just share maybe one or two that you think are really important that need to be sort of enacted now to improve uh, African lives. Thanks, Sad. Yes, um, um, the modeling that I've done would indicate that um, across low, low middle and upper middle income countries, the initiatives that could have the biggest potential impact on Africa's future economic prosperity is the implementation of the African continental free trade area, firstly, and secondly, then, of course, on, on governance. Uh, on the first, I think the argument, in a sense, is quite basic, and that is that uh, different to the US, uh, Europe, uh, China, and India, Africa simply doesn't have large enough markets. It needs regional trade integration if it is going to have economies of scale. The second, of course, is governance, and that is not necessarily the same as, uh, as democracy. Uh, but what Africa needs is developmentally orientated governing elites. And at low levels of development, as we generally know, democracy doesn't really make much of it. It makes no contribution to growth. The third that, of course, has a big impact is the issue of leapfrogging. Africa, because it comes off such a low base, has significant potential to use the digital economy, to use the fourth industrial revolution, the shifts that we see in global value chains, uh, to in actual fact benefit from this greater 
trend of regionalization of manufacturing, of building regional value chains as opposed to necessarily global value chains. And these are the key interventions, depending, of course, and I, I differentiate generally in the book between low, low middle and upper middle income countries as a, a useful way to get a grip on you know, a continent of 55 very, very diverse countries. So those are some of the key takeaways. But I think the other general one is simply um, that Africa needs to invest in getting the basics right. You develop by investing in literacy, in basic edu primary and then secondary education, by making sure that there are roads and infrastructure and water and sanitation. And, and the reality is that that does not happen. And I think that Aaron's interesting visions of where Africa's agency is going to go, our forecasts do not reflect that. I'm afraid that the forecast that I've done, Africa's 3.5% of the global economy by 2040 on the current path, it's 4% of the global economy. Yes, its population increases dramatically, but because its economy is not growing, power is shifting towards Asia, not towards China, towards Asia. And um, Africa's political orientation will follow, inevitably follow that shift over time. So uh, it's going to be an interesting debate to have. Well, we probably won't be able to resolve the debate in the, the few minutes remaining. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to ask Jonathan and Aaron um, if there are any um, silver bullets or non-silver bullets that you want to add to the conversation in terms of key trends to watch or key policy interventions that would uh, really make a difference. So why don't we start with Jonathan? I think we just have to be very clear that when, we, when we're talking about Africa, and as people have noted before, we're talking about a diverse continent with with you know, many different countries. If one looks at that diversity, one, one can also then sort of draw some quite interesting lessons because we have had a series of, of almost natural experiments uh, across the continent of, you know, if, if, if one looks at Mauritius and Madagascar, two sort of island states that, that start out uh, in, in, in a fairly similar place on, on independence and, and one, you know, succeeds enormously and the other doesn't. And a lot of that is about, you know, inclusive government, uh, 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 as, as has been mentioned, um, it's about education. Uh, again, if, if one looks at otherwise similar states like Rwanda and Burundi, and, and although neither are democratic, the one is, is doing much better in terms of development. It's about having a state that is, that is basically competent versus a, a, a state that is highly extractive and, and, and corrupt. Uh, and I guess this then brings us to the, the, the final two points, which is you know, overwhelmingly Africa's future is in the hands of Africa and Africans. And, and we often talk about it as, as if you know, the people in, in, in the continent have no agency and, and we need to you know, recognize that this is their future and they will shape it. Part of what we're doing is we're engaging in a battle of ideas. It's not simply about sort of you know, providing money to build schools or, or pay social welfare grants. It's actually about saying, you know, this is a set of ideas, whether it's you know, governance, democracy, education, et cetera, markets that have been shown to work elsewhere but actually sort of putting our money behind those. And, and I also would argue putting our money behind the sort of civil society and NGOs that are, that are trying to push you know, more transparency, you know, more inclusive governance. Thanks, Jonathan. I think those are great points. I'm going to ask Aaron for the final word. I'm not going to ask Aaron to uh, provide any policy recommendations, but if there's any uh, trends or context that you want to end our podcast on. Sure. Thanks, Judd. And I agree with a lot of the excellent points made by, by Yaki and, and Jonathan. I guess the point I would, I would end on right now is going back to what we started the conversation about this moment we're in with the pandemic, um, and the global economic crisis. And I think we have to recognize that this is one of the most uncertain 
moments we've been in over the past five to 10 years. And so projecting into the future, we have to be very humble about the uncertainty that we're in and, and questions about where trajectories might go. And some, some of the questions I would highlight, one is if we have this global economic recession or depression, what does that mean for growth in sub-Saharan Africa? If we see a sustained closing off by most countries around the world in response to the pandemic, also, what does that mean? There's that great article in The Economist about remittances going back to the continent and that that being in jeopardy. And then the impact, as we were discussing earlier, on governance and regime type. We've already been seeing a retreat uh, in democracy globally. And does the pandemic exacerbate that on the continent as well? So I think those are just questions we're going to have to keep in the back of our mind as we look at our models and we look at our forecasting for the future that we were doing, you know, as of January 2020. A lot of things have changed and a lot of things are very uncertain now. So how do we weave that into our forecast going forward? I think will be an important question over the next year to 18 months. Those are exactly right. And we will do our best at CSIS and on the podcast to try to tackle those. I'm also, I'll just leave on an optimistic note. I do think that there's some creative destruction going on and you know, we need to be thinking about not only how do we weather this particular crisis, but how do we build stronger societies and governments at the other end of the, uh, of the tunnel. Let me just thank all of uh, my guests for joining us today and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.